Welcome to Same Surgeon, Different Life, part of the STS Surgical Hot Topics podcast. This series focuses on demystifying cardiothoracic surgery and presenting the remarkable backstories of surgeons from a variety of backgrounds and in various career stages that have led them to become the face of CT surgery. I'm Dr. David Tom Cook, and in each episode, Dr. Tom Varghese and I will get to know more about our colleagues, the obstacles, the success stories, trade-offs, and pivotal moments that have shaped their careers as well as their personal missions. The opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the views of the Society of Thoracic Surgeons. The program will return after a message from our sponsor. Hi, I'm Dr. Ara Vaporjan. I'm so excited to share news about the new STS Cardiothoracic Surgery eBook. It is the most complete and authoritative online resource of cardiothoracic surgical information available anywhere in the world, and it was authored and edited by the specialty's leading experts. This ebook provides a rich multimedia educational experience that includes regularly updated content in both cardiac and general thoracic surgery. So no more waiting for the textbook publishers to issue a new version every few years. We use the ebook in my training program and the residents love the high quality illustrations, photos, and surgical videos. The new ebook is available online or through a mobile app so that it's available in the office, at home, or at any point of care 24-7. To see a sample and learn more about the STS Cardiothoracic Surgery ebook, go to sts.org slash ebook. On this episode of Same Surgeon, Different Light, brought to you by the STS Workforce on Diversity and Inclusion, we have a conversation with Dr. Loretta Irunse. Dr. Irunse is an Assistant Professor, Division of Thoracic Surgery, Department of Surgery, and Assistant Professor, Division of Health Equities, Department of Population Sciences at the City of Hope. She is an accomplished thoracic surgical oncologist and clinical researcher with focus on eliminating health inequity in thoracic oncology patients. She is a member of our Workforce and Diversity and Inclusion. We follow her journey from moving from the Bronx as a young child and growing up in Montgomery, Alabama why she chose thoracic surgery, her path from Emory University to Harvard Medical School, and experiences at Duke Surgical Training. I will explore how her faith intersects with her identity as a surgeon. Please enjoy. Dr. Irunse, thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. It's really exciting to have you on uh, Same Surgeon, Different Light. Uh, This is our our podcast um, um, born from the Workforce for Diversity and Inclusion from the STS. And you are, are one of our, um, our near original members of the Workforce for Diversity and Inclusion. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I've really enjoyed being on the work stream. I, I, what was it called before we were a task force, I think, is what yes, it was called before. A task force. So, yes. And then um, was incorporated into the bylaws of the STS as a formalized workforce. And then you, you represent the women in thoracic surgery. That's right. That's right. And it's been a pleasure to be a, a part of both groups and, and to sort of have that intersection. Um, so I've really appreciated it. And we'll talk a little bit more sort of about the intersection of women in thoracic surgery and uh, being unrepresented in medicine and thoracic surgery. But you're an assistant professor uh, of surgery at City of Hope in Southern California. How are you all doing uh, in a cancer hospital? Uh, And at the time of us recording, 
we're in the middle of the COVID-19 pandemic. Yeah. So we honestly overall are doing very well. We're continuing to move forward with our cancer resections. There was a time when we were um, trying to prioritize patients, you know, early stage um, disease was uh, being considered for either just a, a, a little longer surveillance versus even considering non-surgical sort of uh, procedures, particularly in the early onset of, of COVID. But now we have a uh, regimen that's working for us. And so we test every patient. We Every every person who enters our hospital is asked a, 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 a smattering of questions. And so, for the, and we are in great supply of PPEs. And so for the most part, I think that our patients and our providers all feel safe. And so we've been able to move forward with our resections and, and the care of our patients, which we really appreciate. Have you slowed down at all in your clinical trial enrollment? Yeah, so um, yes, we have certainly and unfortunately, but you know, for good reason, you know, our clinical staff, our clinical research nurses, our CRAs, our research assistants, you know, there was a portion of time when we were even limiting their ability to come to the campus. We really just wanted patients, providers, and, and that's it. And so, and for, for that reason, and just, you know, the difficulties with recruitment in this pandemic, certainly our trials have had to become a little slower, but we are trying to create sort of efforts to improve that and, and make that better. And, and we're hoping that with the release of the vaccine, we'll be able to get right back to, to the way we were before. Yeah. What about lung cancer screening? Are you still pushing forward with that? Yes, we, so certainly we are, we remain available um, and are and pushing that. But I would tell you, there's been a lot of reluctance with the many of the providers who refer and, and patients. You know, I actually have a research study where we um, focus on educating and increasing lung cancer screening in underserved communities, particularly at federally qualified health centers. And so we have a couple of health centers that we work closely with. And there's one health center where many of their patients really have no interest in being screened right now. And so, and and, and some of the providers even are, are diminishing uh, its importance. And, and so I um, had a conversation with one of the CMOs reminding them that Cancer isn't taking a break, you know, and, and, and smokers still need to be screened. But I would tell you that there certainly is some reluctance and fear in doing anything that people don't think are, is urgent or emergent. And, and unfortunately, people still consider screening uh, in that lane. And so there's been a lot of education to try to make, under, you know, make others understand that we still need to continue to push it. But yes, there is certainly reluctance. Yeah, I know you do you have an interest in disparities. And specifically, I always like to say, you know, instead of having an interest in disparities, we really have an interest in mitigating disparities or That's right. eliminating That's disparities. Right. And there are, when you look at, you know, lung cancer kills everybody That's more right. than colon cancer or prostate cancer, but then you see a sort of a lag of survival outcomes in underserved communities, specifically black and African-American communities to the point where you would say, well, perhaps lung cancer screening is not elective. Perhaps it's That's essential. Exactly right. Exactly right. I, you know what, Dr. Cook, I, I really do. I mean, your sentiment, I agree with you, those sentiments exactly. And, and 
the work now is education, right? You know, we, we still have to sort of remind people of the fact that one, lung cancer is treatable because that's part of the problem. People think, well, if you're going to die from it anyway, what's the point of finding it early? That's not true. We can treat it if we find it early. Um, and two, you're right. You know, there are some communities that are going to experience and suffer from it at, and suffer from a greater. And so we've got to really target those communities, which is what we're trying to do. Great. You know, I, I, we are doing this on a Zoom format. I see the sunny confines of Southern California outside of your office window. I imagine in the Bronx where you grew up currently, it might be a little bit chillier. Oh, when you were born, actually, might be a little bit chillier and perhaps, you know, even snowier at this time of recording. So you were born in the Bronx, yet somehow ended up in Montgomery, Alabama. <laughs> what, what, explain. What happened? <laughs> yeah, explain how, how that came about. That, that must be, and how long were you in the Bronx before you moved to Alabama? Absolutely. So, you know, my parents are from Nigeria, right? My, my father came over uh, to this nation to pursue his education. He studied biochemistry and was actually a professor. And so they had me, the firstborn, in the Bronx. And they were, new, you know, became New Yorkers and loved it. Unfortunately, when I was three years old, my father passed away. And so there was this young mother um, of two daughters who um, just recently got here from Nigeria and, and she thought that New York might be a little too hard of a place to raise uh, two daughters by herself. And so and I think she had some friends in Alabama and at least it was, the weather was more temperate. And so she decided to move down to Alabama. And, I, and so when I consider, what I consider home is Montgomery and not New York. I am not a New Yorker, I'm a Southern uh, woman through and through. And it's interesting, your, your mom was from Jamaica. Uh, is she immigrated? Nigeria. From Nigeria. And yeah. uh, from Nigeria, and then had family in Montgomery, Alabama. That's almost like a minority within a minority um, of African born in a community that were multi generational Americans whose ancestors came from Africa, but you know, 100 years, 200 years prior. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. How were you and your family received when you yeah. came yeah. to Alabama? Was it seamless or was there nuance with that? Certainly nuance, but you know, what is part of the reason I think why I, I personally love different cultures. I love hearing people's story. I love um, connecting with people who have uh, just a different background because you know, what I experienced growing up was there were so many people who did take us in and 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 love the differences about me and my family. Um, whereas there were others who thought, oh goodness, you're you're different. You know, I it's hard to hide my last name. That's part of like who I am. And so from the very beginning, folks uh, immediately know that I'm different. But I I was always drawn and appreciated when people embraced that and wanted to learn about it and wanted to uh, understand it and found connections between their upbringing and their experience and mine. And, and I think it has helped foster this feeling in me of, you know, it, 
really appreciating diversity, right? Like it is, it is important that we are different. Like it, it we need to be different. In, in fact, the way to win, the way to, to discover, the way to, to solve is to have different perspectives, different background, different cultures. And so honestly, me growing up a uh, Nigerian American in Montgomery, Alabama, really opened my eyes to the need for that. And I think it has served me well all these years. I mean, because it, it would be a challenge not only for people to understand you, but for you to understand, you touched on this, sort of that rich Southern black tradition. That's right. Um, uh, which is, has its own sort of bylaws and, and routines. No question. You know, I would tell you, I almost feel like I experienced two lives, right? There was the experience at home from my very strict Nigerian mother. And then there was the experience with my friends at school, which was just completely different. And so I, um, and I really feel like I'm a balance between the two. And so I consider, I mean, my experience was Southern black Christian girl, right? And um, who grew up in in a Nigerian home. And there was a lot of overlap, right? In the cultures, the beliefs and the, uh, and, and actually even some of the experience, but but yeah, there's a duality there that again, I fully appreciate. And then you went on to Emory University. So at Emory, you decided to go to medical school. What motivated you to become a physician? Um, I wanted to be a physician at a very young age. I always, I was drawn to science. I liked math. I, I liked the sciences, right? But I also really and have always enjoyed people. And right, so in my mind, it was just really simple. You just connect the two and so you're going to be a doctor. And I had an, you know, an aptitude and, and, and did pretty well in school. And so that was sort of what was told to me anyway, was, oh, okay, so you'll be a doctor, maybe an engineer. And I didn't really fight it because I thought, okay, um, um, I, I will, we'll figure it out. But even as I continued to matriculate, I realized that I really did enjoy the idea of helping people in a scientific or medical way. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And after Emory, you moved on to, to Harvard Medical School in Boston. So back to the, yeah. the, the Upper East Coast and you graduated right. magna cum laude. So I, I feel embarrassed because you beat me out. I graduated cum laude <laughs> from uh, uh, HMS. What, what year did you graduate? If I may um, to, uh, from Harvard, 2005. 2005. Yeah. So did they still have the society structure? Absolutely. I was canon. Canon. So I was canon as well. Oh, excellent. Um, so you, you go from the Bronx, but you grew up in Montgomery, Alabama, right? And there, there's, you know, a, a history uh, to the South in Alabama or in the South period. And there is a sort of um, a way of doing things that's, that could be traditional. And then you go to a place like Harvard Medical School, which also has its traditions. It has its own terminology. So they have societies. What was the title of the leader of your society? Society leader? Yeah. So mm-hmm. back in the day, they were they were called um, society masters and things okay. like that. Mm-hmm. So. Mm-hmm. How was the transition to to one sort of tradition to another mm-hmm. major tradition? Yeah. And, and how, how did you see yourself fitting into that? You know, excellent question. I will tell you that um, there was a significant transformation 
transition and transformation that was required, right? And, but I also, I think when you enter it into a completely different world, right? And that's, you know, going from Montgomery, Alabama to Harvard Medical School in Boston. Um, I mean, there, there's no starker difference. I mean, to be honest, I think it, it teaches you one, who you are and, and what's important to bring along, if that makes sense. And so for me, you know, it really, it really grounded sort of who I wanted to be and who, how I wanted to present. It really grounded my need and desire for my family and connection. It really grounded my faith. And, but at the same time, it allowed me to really be, to become even more open to even more ideas. I, you know, Boston for me was difficult, right? You know, one is it was so cold in the winter. And I really do think I may have suffer from seasonal affective disorder because like the cold weather, the, the lack of sun really was bothersome to me. I found some of the racial divide in Boston to be really hard hitting and I felt it, you know, when you went from one area to another, I really experienced that. And so there were some parts of Boston that were difficult, but the truth is I made friendships and connections like no other, right? And, um, and, and, and it was with people who were different from me. So again, it taught me this sort of openness and, and I learned so much and it took me to the edge of myself. I, I tell you, there's one thing to be a smart kid in Montgomery. It's completely different to be around a bunch of people at Harvard Med. And so you had to, like, I had to course correct. It was just, I was like, okay, so the, the metrics that I used to prove that I was doing okay, right, the A's that you got in high school or college, there were no A's at Harvard, right? No. And there were no grades. And so that was different. And also the people around me were so freaking smart, right, that I had to, like, I couldn't be the one of the smartest in the room. I was nowhere near that. And it was like, okay, so who are you then, right? So there was a lot of, so, you know, maybe I had a midlife crisis in my twenties because I really had to come to bear with that. Like, hey, you know, who are you and how are you and how do you want to present? And, and so for me, Harvard and Boston presented all of that. And it was actually uh, very impactful to my continued sort of journey. And you mentioned something that when you, when you went there, uh, you had to ground yourself into a lot of what you're familiar with. And uh, one of the things you said, you had to ground yourself in your faith. Mm -hmm. uh, how did your faith sort of guide you through your medical school training? Yeah, you know, um, honestly, from medical school to actual surgical training, my faith was very important. I, you know, I, I will tell you on the hardest days, right? The days where, you know, specifically in training and even beyond where things just don't go right, right? You know, the patient that you just wanted to make it didn't, or, you know, you know, your one of your favorite patients recurs, right? The, the cancer comes back, or there's a, a complication um, that you were a part of and, um, and you have to sort of, you, you actually have to get beyond that. Like for me, it was, it, it was very important to be grounded in a higher power who loves me, who created me for good and 
to be grounded in my purpose. I, I think it's very easy to get sidetracked by the just day-to-day doings and metrics. And, and sometimes you need to take a step back and, and reconsider like, why am, why am I on the earth, right? And sometimes that's very different than the day-to-day tasks. And so for me, that connection was necessary and grew stronger as I became more fully me through the hard days. You touch on the sort of, we always say in tongue in cheek, but it's reality, the seasonal affective disorder of, you know, potentially Boston. And the, there is stress, wellness, and well being issues with medical education. And yeah. we'll talk a little bit about surgical training, but perhaps that faith and being refocused on what your personal mission is, yes. you know, that eyes on a prize helps fight off some of that. Absolutely. Uh, lack of wellness or, or personal stress. Absolutely. Well said. I totally agree. So you, sounds like you got sick of the traditions of structure of Harvard Med School, and you wanted to go to a, a place with very little tradition, more loosey-goosey <laughs> atmosphere. So you decided to do your general surgery training at Duke. <laughs> That's right complete lack of structure and and tradition you're right um no that's exactly right i knew that i needed to get back down south that was for sure but i also wanted to to go to a place that would be strong i wanted to i wanted to be challenged i wanted to grow i wanted to end feeling like i was well prepared and well trained so yes chose to so how cardiothoracic surgery why cardiothoracic surgery you know, there are a couple of reasons. One, on my rotations, um, I was very much drawn to sort of the thoracic patient. So I've always had an interest in oncology, but it was once I was actually on rotation, I realized, you know what, I really enjoy specifically the thoracic patient. Um, and then when I was in the OR, I, there to me, there's no place more beautiful than the chest. And that's the truth. Like, you know, I it the 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 beating heart, the lungs that are inflating and deflating, just the beautiful structures that are just there. You know what I mean? Like doing their own thing, all wor- working in concert. And to be able to sort of connect with that uh, on a daily basis, I, I knew was part of what I wanted to do. And so and, and so the the combination. Of, of that, as well as the um, um, the oncological uh, impact that I was hoping to make, you know, really brought that. And honestly, for, specifically for lung resections, I love that my my patients could eat that day, right? Like I am a I as a Southern person enjoy eating, and I wanted patients who could eat after surgery if they wanted. And so GI for me was somewhat problematic. Now you're training paradigm in the old days what uh, used to be called a decade with Dave, right? You know, because you did the general surgery and the cardiothoracic surgery fellowship, and uh, they used to call that decade with David Sabiston. Who were your sort of mentors or uh, individuals that helped shape your direction uh, in cardiothoracic surgery or general surgery even at, at Duke? There were, there were many. Um, so one, Dr. Thomas D'Amico, he is one of my biggest trainee uh, mentors. He was one who helped guide me from even as an early general surgery resident. Um, I was very always appreciative of his candor. 
for him, things were always very clear. <laughs> and I really did appreciate that. Um, and he was an advocate for me throughout my training the whole time there. So I was very appreciative of, of him. And, and, and I know that I wouldn't be doing thoracic without his guidance uh, and mentorship. Um, Dr. David Harpo was another. He is the one who introduced me to science. You know, I was in his lab and, and I remember, you know, he was very involved with like the genomics of, of lung cancer, you know, basically uh, somatic biology, mutation biology. And, um, and that's some of the work that I'm even doing now. But he, what I appreciated about him was he allowed me to really tap into my own passion, right? And so, you know, even while I was in his lab, he, you know, I, he wanted me to do what was interesting to me. So I was like, well, I'm really actually interested in like disparities. Like, I really want to understand why African-American patients do worse. Like, I, that's my thing. Like, and he was like, okay, go. And, and so he just allowed that, like gave me space. And so the work that I started in his lab, I'm still continuing now. And so I sometimes think about how when you're in the middle of something, you have no idea where you're going, right? Like I'm writing grants now that was sort of fostered and, and the foundation was started back with Dr. Harpole. And so um, I'm very much appreciative and he helped guide. And then, you know, you know, like Betty Tong, Dr. Betty Tong, who is such a sweetheart, she reminds me and remind me of grace and uh, resilience and all the things you need uh, to be a thoracic surgeon. And so, yeah, they're, they're, those are people who really just help steer me. You touch on something about mentorship where your mentor, A, doesn't need to look like you, right? right. It helps, but it's not, there, there needs to be sort of cultural dexterity as opposed to cultural match, right? That's fine. But also you talk about how Dr. Harpole research methodology was big picture, but he encouraged you to answer the questions that you felt were important to you. Yeah. And therefore it wasn't all about his That's career right. trajectory. That's right. It was about his experiences optimizing your correct career trajectory and career independence. That's exactly right. And and that's what you want, right? Like it, that you're right. I I as an African American female, I would have been hard pressed to find an African American female cardiothoracic surgeon who could mentor me, right? Like that was not that that wasn't going to happen. Um, but as you put it, like what I really needed was people who saw me, right? Period. Like the first thing you need to do is you need to see. You need to to, to see someone get a sense of, of what good they can bring and then try to foster that. And so even now as I mentor, like that's what I'm looking for. Like what is, you know, because what we provide is very different. What I provide is different than what you provide, right? But what the, a good mentor is able to try to hone that in and also try to remind the your mentee of that. Because there, like I mentioned, there's some hard days. And if, if you don't have someone who can sort of, um, remind you of, you know, of your own goals and your own good, I think um, it, it's, even, it's even harder. And even as I try to, you know, there's mentorship and then there's sponsorship and, you know, I'm, as, I'm still, you know, early stage. And so um, I have really benefited from both. 
And, um, and so I really understand how important they are. And you're right, it does not have to be someone who is just like you. And the truth is, it can't be there's no one else who's like me. Right. And so we need people who can see me see my good and help me move forward. And I hope to do the same as well. You know, at Duke, and, and, and it's similar to other traditional institutions, there's a wall with pictures of all their past graduates. And many of these programs like Duke have been around for decades. And many individuals with that wall look a certain way yeah. uh, until sort of the recent years. And then it becomes a lot of different looking people there. Was there ever a discussion with you about this in regards to how you feel walking past this wall every day and a reassurance of your inclusion uh, in those traditions and environment? No, there was no overt conversation about it. I think um, that would have been nice. You know what I mean? Like, I, that very much would have been appreciated. I, but no, that, that conversation didn't really happen. But, you know, I would tell you, um, I, oh, I felt supported. I, I definitely felt like people acknowledged my difference. And, the, and there, were, there were many and, and, and the most important people who supported me in my difference. I, and I definitely needed it. I, I tell you, even though there wasn't a, an overt conversation about it, there was an internal one within me daily, right? Um, and so, you know, everyone talks about imposter syndrome. Everyone has, you know, insecurities. But I tell you, when you are um, one of the only, one of the few, one of the first, uh, it, 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 you know, some of that becomes magnified, right? And so, um, you know, one of the things I will say is that I, I definitely had, you know, African-American female friends who were in other departments who, and we talked about some of these issues. So I would, I would say that, you know, you, you always, I think it's important to have your mentors if we, as we've talked about and who, who see you. And it's, but it's also important to connect with people who are like you and who have some shared experience, however you find them. So I found them in other departments and I found them in church and I found them in other sort of social uh, environments and the combination allowed for me, I think, to grow. So no, there wasn't an overt conversation, but it was happening internally. And I was able to move forward because of, of the overall support that I had. Yeah, I think one thing that you mentioned is that people did reach out to you, not necessarily to talk about the elephant in the room, yeah. but to talk about you and what your needs are and to make sure that you're inclusive. I, I look at, at traditional institutions and perhaps the, the way to look at it is that, you know, the, sure, institutions were one way historically, but that doesn't mean that tomorrow is not a new day in That's regards right. to who you have as a part of your institution and how you talk with them and how you discuss issues. That's exactly right. And listen, you know, here's the truth. We're a part of the change, right? Like, you know, our institutions that were a certain way before us are not the same way now, right? They can't be because we've walked through. We yeah. changed the paradigm, like 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 it, we are a part of that change, and um, and it's funny because I was, as you asked the question, I was thinking I would I would do it differently, but I'm I'm the way I am is is sort of 
Like I'm very, I, I'm, I tend to be very transparent. I am, I am not afraid of confrontation. I'm, I'm okay, sort of, sort of speaking the truth. I, I don't mind talking about the elephant in the room because I, I believe it allows us then to sort of relax and get to the answer and, and, and try to get to the solution. And so I, I think if things were could be done differently, that I would probably say more around that now but back then as an early trainee I was trying to get through the day you know and I was just trying to make it you know and so as you mentioned there's a lot of growth and 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 things we grow just like our institutions grow but obviously Emory HMS and Duke provided you with the skill sets and the expertise to come to California and fight cancer and you made a decision to go to an academic center that its entire focus on cancer, uh, as opposed to some of the other aspects of general thoracic surgery that are benign, uh, or not necessarily benign, but non-cancerous. Tell me about that decision. It was right. it based purely on your research or sort of, or other sort of goals and missions? Well, I think it's a great question. I, when I was making the decision, certainly understood that I would be seeing, as you said, less non-malignant or, you know, um, uh, cases. But for me, because I'm so passionate about cancer, that was okay. Um, I still see hiatal hernias every once in a while, um, you know, and so we, so I am seeing, and I see some other non-malignant surgeries, but, you know, I am excited by the removal of and a better understanding of cancer, right? And so coming to a cancer institution um, that had an amazing foundation for doing research, that had a, a good population science department, that has um, a chair that really does believe, a chair in my division chief who believe in, in, in giving their early stage investigators a good foundation, to me, was a very easy decision, you know, right? So, um, and I feel like I am so lucky to be here to be able to do the work that I'm doing. So I'm, I'm very happy. Many uh, early career faculty are like yourself, love their job. And then other early career faculty find themselves in positions where it can be a difficult situation and they want to move on or they're always looking over the shoulder. When you were looking for positions, what key things were you looking for that you felt would be an environment for you to thrive? Great question. I think primarily for me, I was looking for amazing partners. I wanted people who I would trust. I wanted people who I liked. I wanted people who I wouldn't mind sort of hanging out with even outside of work. I I, I wanted to be around people who I thought um, had similar values around um, the care of patients. And and so I think for me, that was key. Uh, And and, and I I didn't feel that I could, you know, lessen that the importance of that at all. Um, secondly, it was um, very important for me that I had a you know chief and chair who I felt would be supportive, uh, and I think that's important. And so, 
I think sometimes people are, are unhappy in their current situation because there's a disconnect with one of the two, either their partners or their their leadership. And and for me, uh, you know, I, I spent a lot of time tr trying to think and project and understand how I would fit in. And, and I think that really worked out well. And then third, I think was really like, would I be able to do the cases and care for the patients that I wanted to? And, and I was given the opportunity to have a practice at the main campus, the main City of Hope Hospital, but also in a satellite community practice where I'm really in the community. And for me, that was really important. And I'm very appreciative of that opportunity. So yeah, that was all of that was very important. And of course, place like I love being in LA. I love having sunshine in December. And so that was great. <laughs> there's, there's, there's not much seasonal affective disorder in uh, LA. I haven't experienced it once. You're right. <laughs> if it is, that's usually a plastic surgical complication. <laughs> That was good. Yeah, that was good. A hormonal endocrine. Uh, That's right. Yeah. You know, when we look at the success of underrepresented in medicine individuals in academia, there's an attrition rate, especially uh, amongst Black females in the surgical uh, specialties, uh, where you look at sort of the transition from assistant professor to professor. And in, especially currently, you know, you, you look at uh, the WAMC job site, there's a, uh, or Isaacson and Miller, or other search engines, they're always looking for vice chancellors or vice presidents or vice deans of diversity and inclusion to look at how to optimize the, the DNI environment. But when you look at, as I listen to you, you are talking about subjects and concepts that are age old in regards to an, an academic career. What do you think is more important for uh, diverse young faculty? Is it surrounding them with an environment that will allow them to achieve their career goals? Is it a, surrounding with a, them with a DNI environment that's optimized? Or are the two things mutually exclusive? Or do they have to be in concert? That's an excellent question. And you know, of course, it's, it's, a, it's not an easy one to answer. I will tell you that I believe that you need fertile soil, right? That young investigator needs fertile soil. And the truth is every plant, every you know, tree needs a different proportion of things, right? That the, we, we, need, we need, what I need is different from what you might need, right? you know? And so, and so for each person, they've got to figure it out. But I think the, the sort of common ingredients, right, of, of that is necessary to, to have that fertile soil includes having a supportive environment, right? Like you've got to have leadership and, and, you know, who, who, who will give you the time to do the research, right? Who will give you the startup to do the research, who will give you space, that support. And, and also you, you need someone who gets what you're doing, if that makes sense, right? Like if you have a chair or chief who's like, okay, yes, Loretta, go do the research. But uh, two minutes later, it's like, hey, but I actually need you to go do these three cases right now. Like, like there's, th that's not support, right? Like you need to give time, you need to give space, you need to give true support. And so I think that is absolutely the key. 
And so, but I also believe that for diverse, you know, surgeons or researchers, having, again, other people who have common interests, even if it's research interests, having someone, a, a mentor, making sure that a part of that structure includes a mentor who has spent um, time focused on the creating of the idea, the writing of the grant, the writing of the papers, right? You know, so so when you, when you hire someone and you say, okay, we want you to be successful, like you for real have to give, you, you have to give the time, the space, the money, the men- mentorship in order to really get that. I do think that diversity, equity, and inclusion are absolutely important. Um, I think the way that looks can be very different depending on the institution and be- depending on on the the actual person, and so I, I and I, but I also think that that can evolve. I, I think you can come into a place where everyone's supportive, and you might be the only, and you can still thrive, especially if there's an ultimate goal to maybe expand. But I think if you had the reverse, it might be even more difficult, right? And so I, I think um, again, fertile soil, the the combination of of the of the nutrients might be different for each person. Well, you've been able to take this fertile soil and really carve out an excellent clinical scientific career uh, with a focus on oncology. And at, at City of Hope, you all are on the cutting edge of oncology. Where do you see our specialty going? What is the future direction of, spe- of our specialty? And what does thoracic surgery look like 10, 20 years from now? Yeah, great question. Um, you know, as a, as a person who thinks about science, I, I, I like to think about this, you know, like where, where, what's innovative, what's novel, what, what, where should we, where should we be? I think one aspect is, you know, multidisciplinary care, intervention, evaluation is the future, right? No one person should be making decisions about uh, complex patients anymore, right? Like we really, you know, treating a complex patient without social work, without your medical radiation, surgical oncology colleagues, without pulmonary for for us, um, or without cardiology's input for for our adult cardiac and our pediatric cardiac colleagues, it, it you know doesn't even make sense anymore, right? Like we are pushing the envelope in what we're able to do now. So we've got, but we can't do it alone. So I think on the horizon is even more multi-D, multidisciplinary sort of evaluation. Um, I think you know, specifically for thoracic um, oncology, you know, you know, genomics, 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 like we are going to, I I think the future will be, yes, we might, we will still be resecting tumors, but we're going to know everything about that tumor. We're going to know the, the, you know, the the differentiation and the plural and lymphovascular invasion, of course, but we're also going to know the somatic mutations from next generation sequencing. We're going to know the epigenetic alterations as well from DNA methylation to histone modification. And and because we're going to understand that the best way to treat a patient is gonna be to know all of that about them, all of their sort of their tumors, because for some patients, the right answer might be given systemic therapy, resecting. For others, it might be resecting and then given systemic. And so I think better characterizing the tumor um, for for thoracic oncology is gonna be where we're going um, for sure in the setting of the multidisciplinary 
sort of evaluation. And I, and I think, honestly, what I'm most excited about is that our workforce is going to be even more diverse, right? Like, I think, you know, that the number, we're starting to see that sharp incline of the number of women in our specialty, which is awesome. And as well, we're going to uh, my hope is to see more and more Black um, men and women, Hispanic men and women, Native American uh, men and women who are serving or serving, who are uh, a part of our workforce. And, and we need that. I, I think that's part of the, you know, if we're behind at all, it's because we don't have the diversity of thought that we really need in order to move forward. So I think those are some of the ways we'll be trans um, changing. You know, the, the paraphrase, Dr. Matisson, the, the natural partner of a thoracic surgeon, and it's not necessarily a pulmonologist, although we, we, we have great relationships with our pulmonologists, it's really the medical oncologist. Mm -hmm. And uh, as we identify and sequence these tumors, right. uh, you're going to find more neoadjuvant and adjuvant partnerships um, mm -hmm. um, with that. And one of the themes, and I, I like your phrase, multi-D, you know, cardiothoracic surgeons are, are, are natural team facilitators whether it's the, the multi-D multi tumor board of a thoracic oncologist, the transplant committee uh, right. of a transplant surgeon or the heart That's team. Right. That's right. Well, thank you very that. much, Dr. Irunse. This was a, a pleasure to hear your story, uh, your inspiring story. Uh, and I'm, I'm really appreciative of you taking the time out when you could be surfing in Southern California. <laughs> to be indoors and talk with us today. Yeah, well, you know, there's still time even, you know, I, so I might be able to, 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 to go out. But no, honestly, Dr. Cook, it's always a pleasure to talk with you, to engage. I really appreciate the invitation and the opportunity. And uh, I look forward to hearing even more of these. So thank you very, very much. This has been Same Surgeon, Different Life, a podcast brought to you by the Society of Thoracic Surgeons. Thank you for listening. If you like this podcast, please rate it five stars and let your friends, trainees, and colleagues know about it. On social media, you can use the hashtag, the face of CT surgery. More information about the Society of Thoracic Surgeons is available online at sts.org.